So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to Inside the Mind of Champions. This is episode 27, a mastermind interview with Rasmus Ankerson. I hope you and your family are well and that your optimism is rising as we start to creep slowly out of our COVID caves. If you're listening to this from the UK, it's been a very tough slog and the kids are finally going back to the schools, which is a great step forward. I know we've got lots of international listeners and I've been seeing lots of posts from around the world with people meeting friends, going to parties and travelling. And it's those simple things that I'll not take for granted again. If there's one positive that this pandemic has taught is it's to appreciate that coffee or that beer with a mate or that regular family gathering that needs to be cherished at all times. I've had a really busy few weeks delivering loads of corporate webinars on resilience, the future of leadership and leading change. And I've even had a booking for a conference speech later in the year, which is a great sign of optimism and that things are going to open up. I think the last time I did a keynote speech at a big conference was January 2020. So I'll have to dust off my suit. If you need any support to motivate or inspire your leaders or your teams across your business in the coming weeks, then please just shout. I'd love to help and you can get hold of me at hello at sportingedge.com. Massive thanks to the listeners who've left a review on Apple like Watabuta, uh, five star. This he said, inspiring. This has helped me to stay motivated and resilient through these difficult times. Gareth Walters, Andy Dawson and Chris Lowe as well also leaving messages. And uh, I've even had a surprise message on Instagram from Adam Hollyoak, the former Surrey and England cricketer, saying that he's passed the podcast on to his network of coaches and players in Australia. So thanks, mate. It's great to see you do so well. Well, talking of England cricketers, the current team have had a really tough test series in India. There's been a lot of chat about the rotation policy and the pitches But really, um, you know, the home advantage was there, of course, as it always is. But as the series went on, I think it was really clear that the key differentiator was the talent and the skill of the Indian team rather than anything to do with the wicket and the conditions. For me, the most exciting thing was the emergence of the young players, that talent like Pant, Washington Sunder and Axa Patel. And that will give them great encouragement to bolster the senior players like Kohli, Rahani, Ashwin and Sharma. And that's going to be the key for us today in this episode, spotting and nurturing talent. And our guest has some fascinating examples to share. 
what ingredients this goes into creating a champion. Uh, there's something about mindset. There's something about innate talent. There's something about peers. There's something about in, in, in environment. But there's also something about pure luck. There tends to be a what I would call an icebreaker effect. Someone does it, and then everyone thinks, if you can do it, why can't I? Getting good at something is not a short sprint, it's a, it's a long marathon. No one will be able to train as hard as we do if they had to do it on their own. Because the social, a good social environment makes hard work easier. Understanding that your talent doesn't necessarily just rise to the surface automatically. There has to be a stimulus. So that's Rasmus Ankerson. He's a brilliant thinker, a best-selling author and the director at both Brentford Football Club in the UK and FC Michelin in his home nation of Denmark. I've met Rasmus several times at various conferences and events and every time I come away with new insights and frames of reference for developing high performance. In Rasmus's book, The Goldmine Effect, he shares the stories from his travels around the world where he found these hotbeds of talent whether that's the Kenyan marathon runners, the Korean female golfers, or the humble track and field club in Jamaica that's produced multiple world champions. Here's Rasmus explaining how some of these talent gold mines emerge and the transformational impact they have on the community around them. There tends to be a what I would call an icebreaker effect. Someone does it and then everyone thinks, if you can do it, why can't I? And that's the most powerful thing in a, in a top performance environment. It is to see upfront evidence. This can happen. This is possible. And if it's possible for him, it's probably possible for me as well. I mean, if you run, if you run 10 strides and you live in this village in Kenya and you run 10 strides behind the guy that won the world championship last year, there's a good chance you think, if you can do it, I can probably do it too because he's just like me. He also gets tired sometimes. So you, you see this icebreaker effect that like in, 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 with the female golfers in Korea, you know, n no one ever won anything in Korea in female golf. Uh, I mean, there are more, there's more um, golf courses in Florida than in the whole of South Korea. Then uh, uh, Siri Park wins the US Open and then phew, everyone thinks, oh, if she can do it, why can't I? They identify with her. And then what we've seen is, uh, you know, just one, one after the other popping up in, in the world elite. And at one stage, 35% of the top 100 female golfers in the world were from South Korea. So, so you have this icebreaker effect. And, and, and I, I think it also has to do something with having role models close, not on a distance. In many talent environments, you, you, you see, you know, uh, go to a football academy in the Premier League, you see... First team here, academy here. Physically, they're very close, but there's like a big wall between. They never see each other. They don't. They don't exchange views. There's no mentoring. There's nothing. You know. And then you don't get that effect. What I've seen in these gold mines is that 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 those those um, role models are really really close. You know. You get to see them every day. You get to speak to them. So you see a picture of how world class look like, and the behaviors that drive world class. You see that every day and that makes you think that it's possible for you so these talent hotspots can spring up because of one individual who breaks through they have the talent the belief and the timing to make it to the next level or to deliver something special just like roger bannister breaking that four minute mile threshold that limiting belief has been shattered 
as soon as someone breaks through. So as the icebreaker shows what's possible, we all get that curiosity and that uh, interest to say, well, if that's possible, could I achieve that? And we start to look for the clues and the building blocks to try and follow in their footsteps. That idea of rubbing shoulders with great performers, I can definitely relate to because in my apprenticeship, in my early career at North Hans Cricket, there were legends like Kirtley Ambrose and Alan Lamb around that environment. And I've also, since retiring from cricket, found great inspiration from top entrepreneurs and executives. So getting excited about other people's talents rather than being threatened, I think, is really important. We should be inspired rather than being jealous of what other people are achieving. After all, we're all running our own race. And I think we've got so much to learn from other people, especially those that are already breaking new grounds. So I think this is a key attribute for the second wave of talent. We don't need to feel threatened and jealous. We need to feel open and hungry and curious to try and chase them down. And we want to learn from other people's success so that we can own it and and make that success our own. So seeing a high performer in your own school, your sports club or your business can be an early catalyst in inspiring you. But there's also a range of other factors that collide into your timeline to becoming a great success, as Rasmus now explains with a brilliant story from his school years back in Denmark. What ingredients this goes into creating a champion? Uh, there's something about mindset, there's something about innate talent, there's something about peers, there's something about in, in, in environment, but there's also something about pure luck. Right? So this story is about Peter, who is a friend of mine, grew up in the same city as I did in the Western Denmark in Herning. Um, 50,000 people live there. Peter was a um, guy who was at the time uh, 11 years old. He uh, uh, grew up in a, in a small suburb of the city and, um, and, and, and no one ever played a piece of classical music for him. Today he's one of the best uh, opera singers. His mom and dad did something that had nothing to do with music. Uh, he played football, Peter, and uh, he, one day he was on his way to football training football boots on, socks, shorts, ready to play in the local club. And his mom was going to drive him there. In the car is also his younger brother, one year younger. His name is Søren. He's going to audition in the local church boys choir. It's called Hanning Church Boys Choir. So they go to the church first. That's where the audition takes place. Søren goes into the audition. Peter waits in the car. He's not supposed to take a long time. The audition turns out to be delayed, so uh, at one stage, Peter simply is going to go to the restroom. So he goes out the car and into the church. The restrooms are in the basement, so he goes down the stairs. Uh, on the way down, he ex- you know, he, he bumps into the conductor uh, of the boys' choir. His name is Mess Bile. He's also going to the restrooms. And Mess says, uh, I mean, you got, you're wearing football boots and stuff, but you look like a good guy. I mean, why don't you come in and sing with us? And he says, well, I'm, I'm just going to wait anyway, so why not? He goes in and sing. He gets picked 20 minutes later. And uh, today he's one of the best opera singers. So the rest is, the, the rest is history. So the message, or the question I'm asking based on the story is, if Peter Lodell hadn't gone to the restrooms in that church when he was 11, would he have ever become an opera singer? And more interestingly, how many Peter Lodels are out there who end up doing you know, something they didn't have any passion for, but could have become 
some of the, one of the best opera singers. So, so luck plays a massive role, randomness, you know, meeting the right person at the right time and being exposed to an activity where you check, you know, and that's massive for, you know, exploring potential. And I think it leaves society, for example, with a big question. It's like, how, how do we make sure, how do we capitalize on our talent mass? How do we make sure that the guys that be, can become good, have the potential to become good, actually do become good? It's easy to look back at the success of really high profile people and expect that all of these stepping stones were just in a linear journey. But actually, the role of luck very rarely gets considered. And in a year when most kids have hardly left their homes, let alone visited all the clubs and societies, these random twists of fate must have been more limited. I think we can all acknowledge that luck's played a part in where we've got to today. But the part that I'd like to play up is that we can actually create our own luck as well by connecting with different people, listening intently to where a conversation is going and saying yes to new opportunities. Our life can change track instantly. I always think about flashbacks to that film, The Yes Man with Jim Carrey, where he had to say yes to every opportunity that was presented to him. And that included random things like learning Korean, learning how to fly and partying all night. But doing this 24-7 could be exhausting, but we know what the opposite does, and that's guarantee us not to open new opportunities. And it's for us to stop letting that fear of failure and that, you know, move back to our comfort zone, stopping us from taking on these new experiences, meeting these new people, and taking on some of these risks that actually could be a bridge to a high-performance life or a different phase of your career. I think for me as a parent, it's just reinforced that idea that we need to stimulate the kids with lots of ideas. You know, they're not going to like everything, but let's give them the opportunity to shine in different areas and see what sparks their passion. Now, as we all progress through these pipelines of talent and uh, development, whether it's in sport or music or whatever it might be, we could assume that these global talent hotbeds that Rasmus has studied have state-of-the-art sports science facilities and technology-driven analytics system that give people immediate biomechanical feedback. Well, that's not always the case, even for the legendary Jamaican athletics club, the MVP club, which has nurtured the likes of Asafa Powell, Shelley and Fraser Price, and generated 33 gold medals, 35 silver medals, and 13 bronze medals. Rasmus was surprised by what he saw. You take Jamaica, MVP track and field club as an example. Uh, I remember I came out there, I was half past five in the morning because of the heat, they train really early. And um, I, I looked around, it was still dark and I thought, where's the running track? Because I just saw this big grass field. And then I said to my taxi driver that I thought you probably drove me to the wrong address. I really thought I was, I was, I was not in the right place. Uh, but uh, when I had a conversation with the coach later on, I mean, he, he made an interesting point about that. Uh, he he like deliberately keeps facilities spartan and simple because he want to show people that the road to success is long and uncomfortable. They like there's all you need there. You don't need anything else really functionally to become the best sprinter in the world. But but there also has to be a little bit of a test like what drives you because if you want the glamour and the comfort you will never go there. But if you want to improve, it's really the best environment in the world. So he, he almost used it as like a a talent ID mechanism, like 
on, on a, from a psychological point of view, if you come here, it's probably because you want to improve. And I, and, I, and I keep the facility spartan and simple to test that. You know, how much do you care uh, rather than, than, than coming for the comfort? And in a bigger context, I mean, in my opinion, because does this, does this mean that every talent environment should downgrade the facilities? Not necessarily. I mean, but, but in my opinion, a world-class facility is for a world-class athlete, not for a rookie. The big mistake, you, bring the, you, you, big, you build these big fancy facilities, you bring 15, 16-year-old athletes into those environments. What do they feel? I've arrived. What's the last feeling you want them to feel? I've arrived. So I think you, you want to build a bit of a, a, some discomfort into the environment. So that's a really interesting point that our youngsters need to keep their hunger and ambition rather than getting access to world-class facilities from day one. There's nothing wrong at all with holding the junior final at Wembley, but you shouldn't think that that's your right. And the key for us as organisers and leaders in sport and in business is to give people a taste of what the top tier looks like and, and get people to keep that appetite, you know, firing up. I remember as a youngster playing one of my first ever games, actually organised games at uh, Old Trafford Cricket Ground, aged 11 for the Staffordshire under-11s. We were playing on that uh, iconic main field there. It seemed like I was walking to the end of the earth to go out and bat. I think I was out for zero or one and I was given out LBW. I didn't even understand what LBW meant, but the parents had been told to give everyone a standing ovation and the players were told to raise their bat. So it was this bizarre thing of a you know a kid toddling off with pads up to his chest, having scored a duck or one, uh, and the parents standing up and me raising my bat. So a beautiful, sweet opportunity uh, to play on that field. But it definitely gave me a taste of of you know the big stage and what it would be like to play in an international match. And you know, 25, 20 years later, maybe I was actually walking out as an England cricketer in a one-day international against Sri Lanka in front of a packed stadium on a sunny day in Manchester, and it was an amazing feeling to have almost closed that circle. You know, I'd started off as a youngster with so much hunger and ambition, and then finally it was realised I was walking out with the England team, some other you know, heroes that I'd been watching for years, Darren Goff and Nasu Hussain and Graham Thorpe, those kind of people, Marcus Trescothic, Michael Vaughan, some of the greats of the game. And uh, we were going out to play on that main field that I'd uh, disgraced myself on as a, as a young 11-year-old. But I think that's the thing. We've got to ignite that passion in our youngsters and make them dream one day that they can, you know, take that full journey for themselves. And, and that's that experience might spur people on through the adversity because I'm often asked about the key ingredient that the high performers that I've interviewed share. And I think it is, it's that passion and hunger to improve that's right at the heart of it. You know, the road from the talented 10-year-old in the academy to being a top pro at 20 or even at 30 is very steep and winding. It's full of potholes. It's got slippery ice, gravel and mud. So you've got to be up for the scramble. Being left out of the team, making mistakes in a crucial game, falling out of favour, having to change your technique, being asked to play out of your normal position, doing all those painful exercises day in, day out with the physio as you try and recover from an injury. These are the real filters of whether you know we can weed out those people with just the talent 
and it leaves behind the people with the talent and the tenacity. And those are the people that go on and make it to the very top. So let's explore that role that motivation plays in fueling high potentials trajectory to the top and keeping them there when they arrive. In Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book, Outliers, he builds on that principle from psychologist Anders Ericsson that it takes 10,000 hours to master any skill, whether it's a foreign language, chess, art, or playing backhand in tennis. Many people have taken this as a literal requirement, but there are many subtleties in play when it comes to personal motivation. To me, 10,000 hours is more a a symbol that getting good at something is not a short sprint, it's a, it's a long marathon. Whether it's 10,000 hours or 6,000 or 30,000 in some discipline, you know, it varies, you know. But so to me, it's, a, it's more a, a, a message that there's no, no such thing as an overnight success, you know, it's, there, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, and obviously, a lot, you, you, you look into a lot of those stories and you see that people had setbacks, how did they deal with them, you know, if you want to be world-class, whatever you do, I think you, you have to have a strong desire. Where does this desire come from? And motivation is a very personal thing and it's also a very universal thing. Universal in the sense that you don't, you don't want to practice 10,000 hours or, 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 you know, work hard if you don't, uh, if you don't have a strong motivation. So you, you got to have it. It's personal because what drives you is not what drives me, you know. I, I met a marathon runner in Kenya who, when I was there to study why Iten, a small village producer, so many top uh, marathon runners. And I met a, a, a woman there who been running, training a few hundred miles a week for 15 years to become good enough to win a big marathon. And she won in uh, Rotterdam, I think it was. And winning a marathon like that doesn't make you a millionaire, but you win quite a lot of money, uh, Kenyan standards compared. So uh, she won and uh, the day after she quits and for the next 15 years, she hasn't even gone for a single yoke. It was a very strong motivation that took her to a very high level, but it was not a sustaining motivation. Then you have a guy like Roger Federer that's about 30 and keeps winning. He's won everything, he's the most, most successful tennis player ever, but um, keep, keeps going around the circuit. You know, that's a different type of motivation, I think. Uh, it is sustaining, but, but, but what drives him? I mean, it's a personal thing and a universal thing at the same time. So if you listen to episode 18 of this podcast on motivation, you'll remember that we explored two types of motivation, extrinsic or external to you. So those things like praise, followers in social media, rankings, uh, salary, and those things that are intrinsic or internal, such as that feeling of pride that we get when we learn or master a new skill and improve something, that autonomy and choice that we have is liberating and motivates us to be more committed to something or having a clear purpose and a reason why this is so important to you. Those are key intrinsic motivators. In Rasmus's example of the Kenyan runner, She'd got to the goal and reached the top to be the champion and to win the prize money. Her sacrifice and striving was all pointing to that moment. So when she'd collected the medal, it was done. Whereas for Roger Federer, he's probably running out of shelves for all his accolades. And I'm sure he must be financially secure at the moment. 
So you can imagine that there's a different type of motivation for him. Maybe it's more of a personal quest to adapt as his body changes or to stay competitive with the youngsters, to be a role model in the game, or maybe even to leave a legacy that no one else can touch. At a time when many of us have had our working rhythm disrupted due to the pandemic, we've probably spent this great pause reflecting on our own motivation and our own careers and future. Have you got that high octane peak that you're trying to scramble towards? Maybe you're motivated more by a negative force that's like proving people wrong or stopping your business from failing. Or maybe you're more motivated by being a positive influence in your community or getting a new business off the ground. It's probably a mixture of all of these different intrinsic and extrinsic factors. And like the Kenyan marathon runner and the international tennis stars that have been going for 10, 15 years, we'll all have our own unique motivational mix, which is as distinct as our fingerprint, but can also change through time. If you win that award, you lose that client, or you get that great newspaper review, all of these elements will combine to test your motivation. And if you want to get to and stay at the top, you'll need to be able to continually reflect on your motivation and reignite it to make sure that you can stay hungry enough to put in the sacrifice and put in the discipline and the work that it takes to get to the very top and stay there. I know as a parent of two teenage girls, it's been incredibly frustrating that their hobbies and clubs have dropped away in the recent months with the various restrictions and they've lost that sort of broadening and fulfillment in their lives. I'm not desperate for my kids to be sporting champions, but I'd love them to find something that they're passionate about and put all their effort and commitment into making a success of it. Rasmus shared his thoughts on what he'd seen from the various talent environments around the world, and it's good advice for parents. Try as many things as possible. I think the Peter Lodell story we spoke about uh, teaches us that, um, you know, you never know where's your potential, where's your passion before you have that. It has to be triggered some, somehow, you know. Talent, your talent, understanding that your talent doesn't necessarily just rise to the surface automatically. There has to be a stimulus. And so try, in an early age, trying as many things as possible to see where you take. For parents, I think uh, there's a, I, I am a strong believer in uh, pacing kids or pushing kids, but doing it in the right way. I think this this idea about pushing, we heard so many bad stories about tennis parents pushing their daughters or, you know, that we think, oh, pushing is only a bad bad thing. But it, I think it can be a good thing. It's, it's about engaging in your child development, being, you know, spending time. It's it's hard work in, in many respects. And I think sometimes par parents, they back off from that um, based on the wrong, wrong beliefs. I've seen behind many of the, you know, most successful, but also uh, happy people that I that I met in in my work. You know, is a is a strong and committed parent. You know, who's ambitious as well. So Rasmus raises a very interesting point there, and it sounds like that balance of support and challenge is absolutely critical. We'd all prefer to be lounging around or wasting time on social media rather than working hard with our minds and bodies. 
But some of the key words that I picked up in there was around being engaged in our children's, you know, career and, and aspirations, taking the time to understand where they are in that development journey of a particular field or skill and giving them the courage and skills, those next steps to take that, you know, next level up. Knowing that somebody who loves you and cares about you is alongside to give you that support and challenge can really accelerate our development. And that's definitely a great reminder for me. To take this support up to the next level, Rasmus shares his findings on the social benefits that come from these talent gold mines. I mean, one other thing might be worth mentioning about the, the gold mines is that we tend to have this idea about that a, a, a talent environment is like um, very uh, elitist, like really focused on individual development and, uh, and, and there's not a huge social factor because it's about improving, it's about me, it's about how can we world class. Where I found a lot of these good environments really social, like, uh, you know, you don't see in, in Kenya, running is not an individual sport, you know, it's a team sport. You don't see anyone going off in the forest running on their own. They train in groups of 10, 20, 30 people. Um, the same thing in Jamaica, this, this athletic club, MVP track and field club, that's produced the vast majority of the best sprinters we've seen in the world over the past 15 years. You know, they train with athletes on various levels, like uh, world-class athletes and, you know, average college athletes, athletes train together. And the, the coach there had a really good point. He said, no one will be able to train as hard as we do if they had to do it on their own. Because the social, a good social environment makes hard work easier. And I think it's a really important point to make about building top world-class environments is that, you know, social, we are all people, like social factors is really important to, to integrate in, in such environment. So that's another great reminder that we all achieve more by being part of a successful team or network. Not only do we get a chance to see and celebrate other people's success, but we're spurred on on those days when we feel a little bit flat. If we can see one of our teammates or one of our group that are getting healthier and losing weight or are getting success in their sales by being disciplined, whatever it might be, then that can inspire us that that is the right way to go. And we've got to get back on track, back to competing against our own best self, if you like, and not taking that easier or softer path. So on those days when we probably listen to that negative voice in our head that'll make excuses of why we don't need to push ourselves, you know, in a group environment, we're not judged on our intentions, we're judged on our actions. And that's where we have to deliver. And that helps us to rise it, rise our performance levels up. We only have to look at the rise of these online fitness apps like Strava and Peloton and Facebook communities to see the positive energy that they can bring and how this social energy can help us to raise our individual game. So as we start to translate these insights into something more practical and tangible for ourselves, we've got to ask ourselves the question, are we really spending the time with the right people that give us the, the positive energy and those proactive people that are giving us better skills, better well-being and better career development so that we can accelerate our success? Or are we falling back into past habits that might just be easier? It's a great time for us to start to think about that high performance environment that we're creating for ourselves.
I've mentioned a few times across the various episodes of this podcast that my own motivation has ebbed and flowed through the last six months, and I've found some key morning routines that have helped me. Definitely getting up and exercising first thing is important to me. It sets me up for the day. And also making some time each week to speak to some great mentors and advisors and listening to industry thought leaders has been crucial. Like you, I can't control what's coming down the line for me, my family or Sporting Edge as a business, but I can put myself in the best shape possible to respond positively when a change comes. When we hang around in communities of people who already display what we want, then we can pick up all the clues. Maybe it's a fitness group or a network of successful students or entrepreneurs. Finding your way into those communities and groups can have a transformational effect as it's much easier than trying to come up with all the motivation and all the ideas on your own. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you again for listening. I know it's an incredibly crowded space and we've got so little time. I can see that our reach as a show is growing week on week. It always makes me smile to see that our show is in the Apple charts top 10 when we're jostling up against powerhouses like McKinsey, Ted, the founder of LinkedIn and Harvard. Please do come and connect personally with me on LinkedIn. I share lots of content there. And if you want to take that next step to become a member of Sporting Edge, then just come over to sportingedge.com and you'll see this low founder price that we've got for our subscription that you can cancel at any time. You'll have over 100 world-class experts, including Rasmus, acting as your digital advisors and giving you the confidence you need to navigate through the challenges ahead. We've also got an amazing community of people around the world developing, whether they're elite sports stars, coaches, entrepreneurs, executives, and myself and the team are planning some really exciting developments for the months ahead. So it's a great time to get involved. I hope you've enjoyed today's insights from Rasmus Ankerson. I think he's a brilliant thought leader. I'll add his links to his books and website in the show notes so that you can learn more from him. Keep your comments and questions coming through to hello at sportingedge.com. And until next time, stay safe and good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.